0: How are you?
1: I'm good. Nice background, Sharice. Thank Charisse you. Sharice is in the burning house. It's like basically the meme, the the dog drinking the coffee meme background.
0: I'm as the dog right now
1: with my tea. Where the house is on fire. Describe this meme.
0: It's the everything is fine meme. There's a dog in a hat drinking a cup of coffee, and he says everything is fine as the house is burning around him. It really encapsulates this uh, moment in time.
1: I always wonder who is the original creator.
0: Mm, good question. I'm sure we could find out. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon and my co-host is Eugene Can.
1: We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation.
0: If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it.
1: People, if they're interested, they can find it on their own time. All right. I already heard you typing. You're going to find out right now, aren't you?
0: It took zero time. It comes from a web comic artist called Casey Green. And the original comic was published in 2013. All right. Thank you, Casey Green, for giving us this meme that continues to be relevant seven years after original creation. Mm-hmm. And Eugene's background is his curtain. He has no Zoom background. I'm too lazy. All right. Who's starting?
1: Yeah, I can go first. My subject this week is Signaling as a Service by Julian Lear. So this topic by Julian Lear discusses how we as humans under the pretense of sharing are actually signaling. So actually I had this idea a few weeks ago and I was saying like everything we share today is actually more so to signal something, signal taste. Uh, I think often the two are overlapping but they generally default to signaling, right? Because there's some sort of like social currency outcome that is at the end of sort of the signaling rainbow, that makes sense. And he starts off this piece by outlining a book he read called The Elephant in the Brain by Robin Hanson and Kevin Smiler. I hadn't heard of this book, but from the synopsis, it sounds quite interesting. And I'm actually going to read a good portion of the synopsis, maybe because I'm lazy, but also because I think contextually it helps to understand where this piece is coming from. Because I think a lot of it borrows from the book itself. So I'm going to read this part. Human beings are primates, and primates are political animals. Our brains, therefore, are designed not just to hunt and gather, but also to help us get ahead socially, often via deception and self-deception. But while we may be self-interested schemers, we benefit by pretending otherwise. The less we know about our own ugly motives, the better, and thus we don't like to talk or even think about the extent of our selfishness. This is the elephant in the brain. Such an introspective taboo makes it hard for us to think clearly about our nature and the explanations for our behavior. The aim of this book, then, is to confront our hidden motives directly. To track down the darker, unexamined corners of our psyches and blast them with floodlights. I like that line. Then once everything is clearly visible, we can work to better understand ourselves. Why do we laugh? Why are artists sexy? Why do we brag about travel? Why do we prefer to speak rather than listen? Our unconscious motives drive more than just our private behavior. They also infect our venerated social institutions such as art, school, charity, medicine, politics, and religion. In fact, these institutions are in many ways designed to accommodate our hidden motives, to serve covert agendas alongside their official ones. The existence of big hidden motives can upend the usual political debates, leading one to question the legitimacy of these social institutions and of standard policies designed to favor or discourage them. You won't see yourself or the world. The same after confronting the elephant in the brain.
0: Okay, so just to sum up my understanding is the elephant in the brain is everything we block off about our subconscious because it's stuff that we don't want to confront.
1: It's kind of like the elephant in the room, but elephant in the brain.
0: Yes. All of the things that drive our behavior that we usually don't spell out.
1: And we sometimes address them or we recognize them and other times we don't or maybe the fact we don't address them is deliberate i don't know it's like they could be subconscious conscious
0: yeah like it could be happening in our brain and we don't even realize that we're doing it that it's driving our motives and then on the other hand it yeah. could be stuff that we know is there but we don't care to like look into it any further
1: correct so julian sums up the book on two main points Point number one, most of our everyday actions can be traced back to some form of signaling or status seeking. And number two, our brains deliberately hide this fact from us and others, aka self-deception. He leads the article with the idea of conspicuous consumption, and he highlights a few examples from the book. So obviously, I think most people are familiar with conspicuous consumption. It's you know the consumption of things that have some sort of outward presentation or visibility to it.
0: I think the best way for you to explain that for people who aren't familiar with it is to give an example.
1: So of the examples, he breaks them off into three different categories. Consumption. So consumption of goods. They could be luxury, aka a Rolex, uh, a Celine handbag. It could be green. For example, I am wearing something that suggests that I am environmentally conscious. And the third one is like loyalty. Loyalty. So, for example, I am loyal to this band, so I'm wearing their t-shirt.
0: Like the New Yorker tote bag, which one of our episodes was
1: about. Correct, yeah. Uh, Second one is charity. This is like giving money away to help others. And according to studies, the visibility behind the charity is actually more important than whether you make a difference or not. So, if I give money to uh, this cause, I don't actually care if that cause is necessarily achieving its goals or I'm directly affecting it, I think what's most important, you might obviously care a little bit, but I think that ultimately the fact people know you donated is more important.
0: To individual donors, not to the charity.
1: Yes. And then the last one is education. This one goes along the lines of brand name schools. And I think this goes a long ways and it's been sort of uh, co-opted a lot in American culture where the school you go to confer some sort of status like i went to an ivy league school for example
0: have you ever consumed anything conspicuously
1: of course everyone has i think that i probably fall into the third one most recently education but Uh, in slightly different ways interesting
0: we can talk about it later but julian's piece actually goes on to be more narrow
1: yeah so then just about yeah yeah so he looks into the components of signaling number one the signal message number two signal distribution and number three signal amplification through the example of sneakers one he picked he said that owning the sneakers themselves are a message like oh depending on the sneaker right it could be like oh i'm sporty um i don't know i don't work uh, a job that requires me to wear a suit and tie uh i play this sport etc
0: i'm trendy so i know what the latest releases exactly
1: Number two, wearing them out in public and or sharing them on social media would be considered signal distribution. And finally, the third one, I'm still trying to understand the difference between distribution and amplification in his example, but he says that finally amplification can be done via the type of sneaker that you wear to differentiate yourself.
0: Amplification is a little bit harder to understand with the sneaker example. It's a lot easier to understand later on when he goes into software. Yes. For example, for sneakers, like let's say it's a pair of limited edition. Let's
1: use Jordans.
0: Oh, I was going to use the para Air Force ones because that's a pair of sneakers I would like to own. Whereas I cannot say what Jordan colorway is like limited edition.
1: No, that makes sense. That's okay. you can pair Air Force so, Ones or Air Max Ones?
0: Air Force Ones.
1: Ah, man, I'm so out of the game.
0: These aren't even new. Um. Anyway, so in terms of signal message, just the Air Force One already has some kind of message, right, that carries with it, like the Nike Air Force One. Yep. Something like, you know, I can afford Nikes. And if they're like super clean, it's like, I don't have to wear these like every day. These are like, whatever you you understand that message kind yeah. of standard for sneakers, Uh signal distribution. Like you said, you know, posting them on social media or wearing them out in public and signal amplification for this particular example would be like having a limited edition version of the air force one. So it's not just any air force one. It's like the Nike air force para edition, which is something that's hard to, Acquire, and you would have to be like in the know at a particular time. It doesn't have to be that particular release. Just like any kind of limited edition, I think would count as like signal amplification. Mm -hmm. So it's making sure that like amongst everyone else's signal message and distribution, yours stands out more.
1: So then he goes on to expand upon this idea, but leaves the world of physical tangible products and talks about software and digital limitations and how their lack of tangibility is a reason why you don't necessarily have conspicuous consumption in the form of digital goods or digital experiences, et cetera, to the same extent anyways. And one example he starts off with are eBooks. So eBooks being obviously your Kindle or whatnot. I think this ties back into the educational element where because I cannot see cover of the book because it's secondary, you no longer have the ability to signal what type of person you are, right? Are you an intellect? What type of stuff do you read? Uh, what kind of interests, et cetera? And then he also talks about how there's a lack of luxury software. And the, he only uses, the only one he can really think about is uh, Superhuman, which is an email client that requires you to pay $30 a month. To a degree, the iPhone also kind of had this with the mail app. You would often receive that little bit at the bottom, like sent by iPhone or whatever.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and so Superhuman has that as well. Like it says that it was sent via Superhuman. So that's signal distribution.
1: I would also argue that technology itself rarely has scarcity built in because it doesn't really function on scarcity. It's more of a, it functions on scale.
0: Yeah, well, any scarcity is created. It's an illusion. Yeah, it's artificially
1: created, yeah. He goes on to use some other examples, but the rest of the article settles on the idea when it comes to software that the financially most lucrative strategy for software companies is to provide distribution for free and instead monetize users who want to stand out of the crowd with paid signal amplification. So uses the examples of both dating apps, so your ability to be seen uh, more prominently or displayed more prominently, and skins in Fortnite where you can change how your character looks because they don't actually enhance your ability to increase your chances of winning. It's more... An aesthetical change
0: they're not functional well, the fortnite example is kind of funny because fortnite is really like a replica of the physical world within a game, and so signaling in fortnite works the same as like signaling in the physical world where you are acquiring like customization kind of the way you would acquire physical articles of
1: clothing so the reason I chose this is that i th- what I find interesting is that as much as humans think they're the most advanced and intelligent creatures on the planet, there are a lot of things that still affect us and have a strong control over us, whether it's through nature or nurture. And I think at times these are things that consume us and we're unable to sort of break free from the, the structures that, be, that we're basically inserting ourselves into, like the game of life basically.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. I liked how he broke down signal message and distribution and amplification. And that has made me think more about the way software does those three different things. But I would definitely be curious about that book because I would like to know more about what kinds of signal messages I am subconsciously buying into that I'm like trying to send out
1: yeah or suppressing or, or that, whatever
0: uh or that i'm affected yeah. by
1: yeah because yeah because i was going to use the example of the ebooks right like now that you can't really show what book you're reading per se like in a public environment uh you end up taking photos of passages and sharing passages right and i think that itself is a form of signaling like i i made this comment like i shared some quotes from a book i was reading and i use the kindle app and the kindle app just like packages it into this basically it just turns into a photo right with a little bit of yeah. of type design around it and that's the closest you can get to this social signaling yeah. right you look at the content you look at the type of book the author and that is in itself what you're trying to convey to the people on the other end.
0: Yeah, I mean, it takes a little bit more work because no one is going to like accidentally see you carrying this book in public. So it's a little bit more intentional. Actually, it means that it should be more obvious that you're trying to distribute a signal. But when we share the things we're reading online, it does have signaling packaged into it like it might give us other things like it might not just purely because we're trying to signal like being intelligent but i think that's an element of that behavior
1: i don't really have too much else to add because
0: just anecdotally earlier when i asked you like have you participated in conspicuous consumption and do you have like a recent example of that behavior in yourself
1: so the one thing I think about in terms of fashion is because one of the most interesting things is the the whole unbranded argument, right? When you buy something that has no brands or logos, but in itself is a form of branding.
0: Yep. So is that something that you participated in recently?
1: One of the brands I really like is Valence and Outlier. And I think both those brands are largely devoid of any branding. So in itself, that is a form of... Branding, right?
0: No, though, if you don't go around telling people that it's Arctorex Valence and Outlier, then it's inconspicuous consumption.
1: Correct, but it's still conspicuous in the way like, it's almost at a next echelon. Because it's almost as though that since people don't know, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's more like it's narrowing down the people that do understand it and trying to derive currency Interesting. from that crowd so it's more like it's not for the masses because you're not actually looking for validation for the masses because you don't value their validation so as in that makes sense
0: when you buy an unbranded article of clothing such as Arc'teryx valence and then post a photo of yourself wearing that and then you don't tag it or anything or call attention to it but people recognize it as like that article of clothing because it's like recognizable, then that's the kind of like messaging and distribution that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, pretty much. So basically you're hoping to get validation from the people that do recognize the brand. It's
0: almost like this is kind of like a riddle, but it's almost like in that case, the amplification is the lack of amplification, so, like, by being yeah. really understated and low-key, you are amplifying that signal of, like, exclusivity and being in the know.
1: So, I think that's generally how, like, influencers at the top end work. I'm not talking about, like, a mainstream influencer that's wearing, like, mm-hmm. a pair of Levi's, right? Like, the, mm-hmm. <sighs> it's mm-hmm. like the tastemaker. Mm-hmm. Air quotes, tastemaker. And I think that's the part that I find somewhat interesting because it's a further... Uh, it's like a further leveling up of it. Now, mind you, I don't wear I don't wear valence because I think that I'm trying to appeal to that crowd so much as it in itself it has various factors that limit its ability to be consumed at scale, right? Because yeah. it is a form of luxury, right? It's in certain stores. The pricing might be cost prohibitive to some people, but like some people, if they wanted to convey a certain level of uh, cultural currency with the same budget, they could probably do it a little bit more easily.
0: Well, I think what's interesting in this subject is whether an item in itself has its own signal message that comes with it, like in terms of the way it's marketed and produced, and versus the consumer's intention of a signal message. If you don't participate in like distribution of the signal message the article still kind of has it within itself
1: mm-hmm. like i'm not participating in the message but i am because the message is up for interpretation if i'm out there distributing it by virtue of wearing it i in guess public. so
0: yeah
1: yeah well the one thing i do find like i'm, I'm in these discords that are both for outlier and techware and you do find a lot of people that share their their fit pics for the day. I always found that really interesting. Why do you find it interesting? Just like it, it's part of the distribution, right? And the quote, to a degree, the amplification. You yourself, like, because this, the, the stuff they wear might be unbranded. So they come to places where they know there's going to be a level of validation that's baked in because this crowd will mm. recognize what they're wearing.
0: When I was thinking about this for myself, I was thinking about the sharing of material I read online and how, I mean, I think Julian mentions this somewhere in this too, about publications and media. There was a passage about a failed social media network called path and julian wrote while path did indeed fail as a distribution provider i would argue that keeping the network size small can still have benefits in line with my signaling theory deliberately limiting the number of people who can join a network for example by charging a membership fee creates scarcity which in turn makes the network more interesting network membership becomes the signal message users pay a membership fee to signal to other members that they are part of the tribe i happen to have a free new york times membership because of um the school that i attended so i'm still using like a free student subscription but i do think about the fact yeah is that forever i don't know if it's forever but it has been for the last year and a half and still continues to be true at this current point
1: oh for some reason, I thought it was uh, from Parsons. I was like, whoa, what the hell? No,
0: it's from Goldsmiths. So my most recent.
1: Yeah, the reason why it threw me off is because that school is in the UK, right? Why wouldn't they give you like a British publication?
0: I think they give you publications to a bunch of things. No, no, no. It's just because you have a student account. So it's not like oh. a direct like Goldsmiths publication relationship. It's just like having a student email.
1: Oh, that works. got it.
0: Though now I feel weird because I feel like I've participated in like this additional layer of like social message and distribution now by like mentioning both of the schools that I attended moving on from that um so I have a New York Times subscription which I actually don't pay for but I think everybody knows that New York Times is like a paywall you know publication and you get like five free articles a month I think I forget five to eight something like that and so I think about the fact that like when I share a lot of New York Times articles like whether I am subconsciously you know messaging that i am part of this club essentially that like reads and pays for the new york times and is like a supporter of it
1: i mean this is interesting cuz we're going to we're going to eventually broach this subject in the next topic but this is something we've discussed about the bifurcation of media right between the haves and have-nots what does it mean in the future if you know you're sharing stuff that is I already think about
0: that because if I share
1: I was gonna say I've been thinking about it a lot because that's also something that influenced how we wanted to run yeah. our quote unquote membership. But anyways, yeah, you you go ahead.
0: I don't even share that many links online in terms of like the different places I share with people I know, Slack, WhatsApp, Twitter, et cetera. But do think about like what proportion of the links I share are behind a paywall. Like how many of these articles could people read for free? like within their kind of monthly quota of free articles. And so I try to be careful about not sharing too much that would like use up people. Not not that people always read what I share anyway, but like not wanting to
1: blow up. Exactly. I don't subscribe to that strategy because I think that ultimately, number one, yeah, you're right. Like they won't read everything that you share. But secondly, I don't think it's necessarily bad if they are hitting paywalls because they've well, shown also, I'm interest of the opinion right?
0: that people should pay for publications. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. I, 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 but I do think I try to do a balance, even minus the paywall concern. I think I do try to consciously share a balanced c- coverage. So it's not just all a hundred percent New York times articles. But then that's also kind of messaging as well cuz I feel like I'm trying to demonstrate that my reading goes beyond like one publication. I don't know everything becomes like
1: self-motivated in some way when you think about it too much. But I mean, ultimately, I I don't really have any sort of concluding statements. I think it's yeah, and I think that's the best you can really do cuz there're certain things that are mostly out of your control, especially on a biological level. I don't think we're about to go and rearrange our sort of our biologically ingrained habits.
0: I think it's interesting how for most of this article it was kind of a explanation of this theory of social message distribution amplification but it actually winds up being a recommendation for software companies. So Julian's angle at the end is Mm -hmm. that his very final statement which you read was about the financially most lucrative strategy for software companies is to provide like paying for signal amplification so i didn't really see it like going in that direction but becomes interesting to think about how software companies might adopt that strategy it's like for example if Mm -hmm. instagram released you could pay for another tier where your posts like suddenly got like i don't know some equivalent of like a blue check mark or like were boosted which technically kind of already exists because you can do paid posts but it If they release like an option for just regular account holders to do that, that would kind of be getting money from signal amplification as opposed to doing the advertising route, which is what they do right now. Should we move on? My subject this week comes from your own writing. So when I was thinking about what to link to, I realized that actually you'd written two pretty long passages on this subject. And the subject is Macon has changed their membership strategy. It's funny to talk about us in the third person. Essentially, Eugene and I spent many months discussing this. And finally, it's rolled out, it's public. I thought it was worth talking about on this podcast so that people who might have missed you know, our messages elsewhere would hear it from us here.
1: Why do you think it took us so long?
0: I mean, you talked about Is it because of me. why you thought it took us so long. I'm just going to read what you wrote in the most recent briefing. You wrote, when we launched Macon three or so years ago, we had a very different mindset. Everything needed to be custom, every pixel perfect. We didn't find a membership plugin back in that we liked. So we labored over building our own. Countless hours and probably more money than necessary was spent to build the perfect product early into our launch. And then later on you write, but keeping it simple and iterative is something I didn't quite grasp, but I'm glad I figured it out eventually. So I think that's one reason is that we're our own worst enemy of wanting something to be perfect and obsessing over like what perfect looks like and therefore not making quick easy changes along the way and that has been to our detriment not the mindset because I think our desire to produce something like good is a good mindset to have but our strategy for getting there was too much of like being in our own heads and perfecting it on paper before like bringing it to life to exist out there And I think another reason that we've talked about a lot is like proprietary versus non-proprietary. And it is hard to be reliant on other people's tools. You know, so to be reliant on Slack and MailChimp and WordPress and Discord and Patreon, all of these things belong to other companies. And we're very aware of that fact. But at the same time, like we've had to come to terms with the fact that we don't have the manpower or like financial resources to build all of these different things on our own even if that means that we are dependent on other people's products and the strategies that those companies have which are not you know necessarily in alignment with our own so that's like a compromise but i feel like before we go even further into like why it took us so long or like how we feel about these changes i should probably explain what the changes are when macon started our content was behind a paywall so you couldn't access yes a hard paywall, hard paywall. you couldn't access yeah. any stories without being a paying member and actually that evolved i don't know a year into making something like that where we kind of made it like a soft paywall in terms of like what kinds of stories were exclusive what stories were not how much you could read for free versus not and then actually a while ago we already moved into providing all of our content for free so stories this podcast the briefing has been available to everyone and that's because of this philosophy essentially this vision we have of like all of this stuff being accessible to like creatives who want to be a part of this community and feeling like in order to move culture forward in the way that we see it to be it has to be accessible to everyone however because we had that desire it wasn't really financially viable essentially and so the change that we have made now is that we've launched a patreon to handle membership and we've also changed our tiers in terms of membership and i think also bigger than that then those details of like membership and how much it costs is like coming to terms with this mindset that we're happy to have people support us just for the sake of supporting us and for like being interested in seeing Macon continue to like exist and grow. So it's a change in that mindset of like, we're offering people a very specific item or items for money versus we're offering people a chance to be like a part of, you know, our support team and like keeping us going as we are. So it's not like a direct trade off of like money for item. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Would you say you agree with what I've said so far, or have do you have like a
1: different perspective on this? It's, it's pretty straightforward in terms of the way we've approached it. It's, I think, what's most interesting is had we launched making in 2019, 2020, I think we probably would have taken a slightly different approach or looked harder at the options available, like, you know, starting an online store through Shopify, getting membership done through Patreon. Like I think there's a lot of services that exist that didn't necessarily exist down the line. And one of the things that I think slowed us down was sort of running before we could walk and thinking, well, when we're at this size, this'll be a headache because of that. When we aren't even there to actually tackle that problem head on. And one example would be like Hey, if you move from Slack to Discord, will you be able to handle a thousand members on Discord versus a thousand members on Slack? Like we're not even there yet. So why even bother consuming yourself with that process of solving a problem that doesn't exist? Yeah,
0: but that may never exist if we don't make that change. We might not ever have to tackle the problems of scale if we don't reach the scale. I actually disagree with your perspective on Tool availability, because you said this earlier this week as well, that you think if macon had launched 2019 because of the tools available, we would have made different choices. I don't think that that's true. I think that what's different is your and mine and Alex's way of thinking. Like I don't think that we didn't pick the tools in 2016 because they didn't exist. I think we didn't pick them because we didn't want to.
1: Potentially, yeah, potentially. So maybe a better way to look at it is both personal learnings and the understanding that building something brand new doesn't need to be custom because there's so much room for iteration and product market fit that it's almost better to start as easy as possible because ultimately, and I mentioned this in I think the thing I wrote is that making isn't out there to become some sort of WordPress plugin in for membership yeah. Opportunities It's like really out there trying to do you know community building storytelling et cetera et cetera and anything that gets in the way of that that you can automate and or defer in a relatively affordable manner should be definitely considered I think that's 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 probably a better yeah. way to like explain Yeah
0: I'll, I can read what you wrote if it helps some days I wish we weren't so stubborn and so dedicated to an unachievable perfection, because for most startups, it's far from the most important outcome. Learning from your audience and adapting to their needs while balancing your own passions is what ultimately wins out. We don't care about building a proprietary back-end membership system. We care about stories and the impact of creatives on their communities and the world at large. And if I can say, like, in hindsight, and obviously I'm not, like, innocent In this situation as well is that i feel like from the start maybe a little bit of our ego got in the way of seeing membership systems and messaging systems and thinking oh i could envision this so much better i'm sure that we as a team have better ideas of how this could be executed but the reality of making those ideas functional is takes a lot of time and resources and money that how, Pro- like you said, shouldn't have been spent there because we're not, we don't exist so that we can provide a better forum UX UI experience. Like, that's not our main goal here. So, I don't know. It just took us time mm-hmm. to get to that point. But, I mean, enough about the past, I guess. Like, I'm really excited for this change. I think it's been evident as well, like in our conversations, you know, just the fact that me, you, and Nay and Scott and Alex and like the team itself that's involved is excited is a good difference to have.
1: Yeah, I, I, the minute we went live, I messaged you, I'm like, oh, it's like a yeah. weight's off my shoulders now. Yeah. We talked about this too, like as an aside, it's like, it's interesting how data and information and content is categorized and how where it appears and its frequency denotes its importance. So what I mean by that, stuff you see in instant messaging arguably is less important than something you see in, mm-hmm. let's say, social media, right? And then beyond that is like, mm-hmm. let's say, a newsletter. So the more infrequent it is, it almost becomes more important, assuming yeah. there's a level of trust there. And what we've done is found ways to like identify, I think we're relatively good at it although we might always have the resources to differentiate the editorial product Mm -hmm. for the medium, but like, I think we, we developed a newsletter product. Now we actually have a Patreon content product too, you know, things that happen more quickly, but since the audience is smaller and more intimate, it also allows you Mm -hmm. to speak a certain way. It's a little
0: bit more casual. It doesn't have to be as considered of a product it's to people who are already supporting us so there's not as high of a risk in terms of like what you're publishing and i think this is also a good moment where i feel like we should make some kind of pitch to people who are listening so if you check out our patreon you'll see that there are three tiers there's a two dollar there's an eight dollar and there's a twenty dollar and all three are pretty similar right now the eight dollar tier is the main one What it gives you is the make-in briefing sent to you twice a week, access to our discord, priority invitations to participate in office hours and webinars, 10% discount, and early access to make-in merchandise and events when those happen. And also, it's in here that me and you are going to answer questions on bonus episodes of Making It Up, which I would be happy to do. And then those will probably be released on our Patreon, like you said. So it's like, content that is exclusive to paying members on patreon specifically and then the two dollar tier is kind of a Mm -hmm. tier that was in a response specifically to this time really where we understand that there are people who are in financially tight places so it's like very strange and i'm sure it's strange for other companies as well to be like launching any kind of product and asking people to consider spending your money in this way when obviously People have been hard hit and need to consider what they're spending money on, so there's a two dollar tier um people should go and support us. Was I convincing enough? I like don't know we're we're both so bad at I don't selling know. so we if yeah, you love listening um, to all of making it up. Patreon supports making
1: it up. one thing I thought was one thing I did think was interesting was timing, like given how the world around us is in its current state. Is it the right time? Is it not? Yeah. Etc. And I think that's almost like a good topic to talk about. And I thought about it, I'm like, I, this is the thing that I, I is challenging too, given we operate in such a like a global world, but we also are based here in Hong Kong. Like I, I have to catch myself because when I look out my window, my reality is not going to be someone's reality yeah. in another part of the world, right? In Hong Kong as it is in the and obviously consumption will fall. Over the next probably half a year, whatever, whatever yeah. that timeline is, right? And I was thinking about this and like, we wanted to be mindful of both the current situation, but also the reality of, hey, we, we probably have to do this at some point, anyways, right? And I think that. Well,
0: I mean, this was also in the works prior to December. Like, I, I'm pretty sure I opened this subject by saying, like, Eugene and I have been talking about this for months. And that's completely true. So it's actually relevant to the subject that I didn't yeah. pick which is I was going to pick an article on Quibi. Have you heard of Quibi? Yep. Quibi is this new short videos for your phone platform that is subscription. And it's meant to be like, they keep saying like Hollywood level videos, but in short format for you to be consuming like in between time. So it's not really for binge
1: watching. Have you downloaded it? Anyway, the
0: article I almost picked, I have not downloaded it about Quibi was really about how Quibi is facing this huge challenge of launching in the midst of a pandemic. So their soft launch date was April 9th yesterday. And I think their hard launch is like the 17th or something like that. So, I mean, there's so much more riding on that than there is even for us. Like, I cannot imagine what it's like to be the CEO of Quibi right now and like trying to figure out all of their, the change in their strategy it's impossible to predict the future and we had this planned already so it is just trying to be more conscientious about our messaging like the way we're addressing people and the concerns that people have and also knowing that the way this lands right now is different than how it would have landed 6 months ago and versus like 6 months in the future and there's like no way of knowing like this is what it is
1: it's not like we've had any feedback but i was conscientious of it because I saw comments elsewhere of another unrelated, like it's a media company, but it's different. It talks about like backpacks, how they were doing their own sort of membership model. And people were like, oh, how can you do this during a pandemic? And like, well, no one's forcing you to do it, right? And in reality, like it kind of goes back to what we mentioned before that there's a good portion of making that still remains open to the public. I don't know if we need to justify it so much as like, it's something that I was thinking about a lot. I've personally, anyways, always had this uneasy feeling when it came to the exchange of money in the face of creativity, knowing that I also came from an editorial background, right? Versus like, oh, I'm not. it's not like I'm a designer and I'm kind of exchanging services in this capacity. Like there, there always needed to be some sort of objectivity or purity in what you were doing. And yes, there were ads on it or whatever, but that was generally shielded from what you were out there creating or producing.
0: Are you talking about our previous workplace?
1: Well, I mean, that's just in general. I think most most media companies.
0: Okay, because there are not ads on Macon. Yeah, Supporting us keeps ads off of Macon.
1: Correct. Yeah, so yeah, I just want yeah, to be clear. Correct. It still lingers. Like The feeling lingers in that asking people for money is in, in this capacity when it sort of is in the realm of things that are creative, I guess. That's obviously a really bad way of just like, encapsulating everything like i've never really had that comfortable of a feeling with it it's not that i don't believe that membership is a superior way of funding media than versus advertisements it's just my own personal inclination against not necessarily Mm. receiving money but just that Mm. feeling to that point like if i continue on and expand on this is like the quality of content from member supported publications generally exceed that of an advertiser-supported publication or some sort of advertorial-supported publication.
0: Well, I mean, I think it is interesting what you're saying about the dynamic because obviously there is a shift in the dynamic of knowing exactly like the people who are putting money towards your efforts and then producing content from that money like knowing that you are continuing to exist because of these like specific individuals but at the same time I would rather feel more responsible like heightened responsibility to our new patrons than I would want to feel responsible for like a big advertiser who is bankrolling everything and I'm not trying to badmouth advertising because when you go into membership, there is a complication of listening to members and then making changes based off of member desires as well. Like I'm very aware of that too. And it's complicated because not all your members want the same thing either. So it becomes a more complicated juggling act or it can be, but I mean, all of our members Mm -hmm. so far have been very lovely. I'm not trying to suck up to them. This is just true. Yeah. So Uh. thank you to everyone who has supported us already um, in this first week. It's been really personally encouraging to Eugene and I. We've sent a lot of thumbs up GIFs to each other.
1: Yeah, I personally am always super grateful as well as surprised. It's an interesting feeling when amidst everything going on in terms of the current state of media, uh, just even what's around you and people are still willing to support you. It's like, yeah. a, it's a really special feeling.
0: I completely agree.
1: Going back to the whole thing with Patreon and having a new sort of outlet, I was talking to her about this and like, how can you further encapsulate the whole, I how to put this, you know, prior to this, I was having a conversation on the side with uh, David C. He was just like, oh yeah, I really appreciate the transparency around, you know, this whole move. And like, it, it, it's generally a lot easier for us to, Exercise this level of transparency, but I also thought maybe there's other ways that we can continue onwards. Like, one thing I, I immediately thought about it was like our current monthly donation amount or patron amount is hidden, right?
0: Right now, the Patreon dollar amount is hidden, but not the number of patrons. Correct. But at the risk of turning this, making it up, recording into a work call, I would be fine with changing it to make the dollar amount visible.
1: Yeah. So, like, that's already a start in terms of increasing the transparency around it right like i don't really have anything to hide i mean we're also fortunate because making itself doesn't subsist off of just how much we generate through patronage and memberships right but i think that it's nice to start building that narrative and understanding how much money is coming in and what more money that comes in means more money that can go out towards certain things yeah but like back to that transparency thing like i really want to think you know the whole base camp model of like revealing how much people spend or like their P&L. Like, I think that's really fascinating because if people can derive learnings from that, then you can take it and then hopefully apply it to your own business or other things that yeah. that might be of value to yeah, you. Yeah, I mean,
0: remember that episode about the markup where we had to cut out like 20 minutes of that conversation? A, a large chunk of that was me yeah. suggesting that we be more transparent about money and the exact things that are happening and i feel like patreon with the ability to send out content specifically to patrons allows us to do that in a more careful way so it's not just like putting everything out there publicly on the internet for anyone but it is something that we'd want to do for people who are who are demonstrating that they really care and i'm into that
1: yeah Sounds good. I'm excited for this new chapter.
0: I know we talked about this, but new chapter is really corny, but I'll go with it.
1: <laughs> I have no other.
0: I have no other replacement phrase, so I'm not helping. I'm also excited about this new chapter. That's a good place to cap yeah. things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com.
1: You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend.
0: Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macan.com, C-H-A-R-I-S or Eugene at macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you.
1: I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.